Good morning. morning. Let's begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are our God and we love the way you run your universe. And as we look around the world and we see things transpiring, we can see ever more clearly why we want you to run things and we want to be part of your kingdom. We ask that your spirit will enlighten us and, and continue to, to uh, solidify your methods into our hearts, writing your law in our hearts and minds. Give us greater wisdom and discernment and ability to practice your methods and prepare us to meet you that you might be uh, coming very soon. And we pray that you'll be with us as we study today, that we can lift your name on high. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing uh, Lesson 9 in the fourth quarter uh, education, which is church and education. What does the title bring to mind? The church and education. When you think of the church educating, do you immediately think of being taught the right facts, learning the appropriate creed, memorizing the proper catechisms, learning the 28 fundamental beliefs. Does the idea of church education make you think of being taught how to think or being taught what to think? Is there a difference between indoctrination and education? What is more important? And think about what you want your church to do. Teach you the right truths or teach you how to think critically and reason for yourself so you can differentiate truth from error. Which has been your experience that the church has been more focused upon making sure they have the right truths for you to know and defend them or teaching you the right ways to know how to differentiate, to teach you how to think and reason and weigh the evidence. Which has been your experience in church? I can give you my experience very clearly has not been teaching critical reasoning and how to weigh out the evidences for yourself. It has been, these are the truths, we have the truths. If you question the truths as we have them, and you want to reason them through with evidence and expand or develop them in further lines that we haven't yet approved of, we call that heresy. We can't, we can't tolerate that. If it goes across a certain line. Within a certain line, it's okay. That's my, my experience. Have, am I the only one to experience it that way? You haven't? Or you have, yeah. I love this quote from the book Education. And has this been what you've experienced in church education or church school. This is, a, this is out of uh, the book of education, page 17. Every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the creator. Individuality, power to think and to do. The men in whom this power is developed are the men who bear responsibility, who are leaders of an enterprise, and who influence character. Pause just a moment. What does it mean, individuality, power to think and to do? Does that mean that you have great ability to memorize and regurgitate back the right answers on a quiz? You're able to express your own ideas and thoughts about things, your individual Ah. thoughts. Okay, you have your own individual identity, your own ability to think and to reason, you have your own perspectives, your own beliefs, your own attitudes. Okay, all righty. And you can think, come to your own conclusion, and you can act, you can make choices and do things. You're not a robot, you're not a puppet. That's what that means, okay. What does it mean to have 
this power developed. Notice it said, individual, and, and men in who this power is developed are the men who have leaders and enterprise and so forth. What does it mean to have it developed? If we have this power inherently given to us by God, God has given us this power, do we have to develop it? It has to be exercised. Ah, yes, it has to be exercised. See, just being given an ability doesn't mean that you have mastery of the ability. That has to be exercised in order for us, so we have to develop this power. If we don't, what happens to it? Ah, and if we lose that capacity to think and to do, we become followers. Okay, keep me on with the quote. It is the work of true education to develop this power. What power? Thinking and doing. Reasoning, understanding. That's the power. True education should develop. To train the youth to be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Amen. Wow. Think that through. So education is not merely teaching facts or teaching right doctrines or teaching right truths. If we do that alone, we fail to educate. We indoctrinate. True education is to teach how to think. This is what Common Reason Ministries is focusing on. It's designed to teach people how to critically reason, how to think for themselves. See, we present ideas and truths, but we always try to give the reasons why it's true. Not just that it's true. And this is not a good reason. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Here's the Bible verse that proves it. You understand if you believe something because of a proof text. The Bible text says it. I believe it. That's all there is to it. That you are not a thinker. You haven't been educated. You've been indoctrinated. A thinker will believe the Bible text because they understand why the Bible text is true. They understand the reasons for it. That's why God said, come let us reason together though your sins are like scarlet. This is what true education does. And so we integrate Scripture with science and real-life experiences, how reality works, and then we understand why it's true. What is the difference between being a thinker versus a reflector of other people's thoughts? What's the difference? Well, think about this. Are we to be lights in the world? Jesus calls to be lights in a world, right? Is there a difference between a light and a reflector? Do you have a reflector on your bicycle? Do reflectors generate light? No, they don't generate light. No, they do not. They reflect. they reflect some other light source. But what does the light do? It illuminates. It actually has light to give. We are to be thinkers, not reflectors. We are to be lights in a world. We are to have, so as thinkers, as lights, we have truth. We have ideas. We have concepts. We have perspectives. We have things to illuminate mind. Reflectors, we don't have anything like that. We simply can reflect or give quotes or regurgitate what somebody else has told us. We're reflecting somebody else's thoughts. You can see this with people when they will tell you some idea, some concept, and you say, well, tell me why you think that. Where are you getting that from? And they'll give you a quote. Well, 
so-and-so said this, or pastor so-and-so told me that, or I read this in a red leather book, or, okay, I'm glad you got that source. I, I appreciate that because we all are learning from other people. There's nothing wrong with that. Tell me why you believe it. Well, he's the pastor. Well, the Bible said it. Well, this person had the gift of prophecy. That's why I believe. So then you would have believed Peter when Peter came along because he had the gift of prophecy. He's an apostle. You'd have believed him when he said we shouldn't uh, associate with these uncircumcised fellows. You would have believed that because he had the gift of prophecy. Is that why we believe? Because somebody has the gift of prophecy? No, we just, we just believe. Can somebody with the gift of prophecy be wrong? Yes. How many of you are comfortable? Does that make you uncomfortable? When Peter was, was telling people and acting in ways not to associate, he was acting in relation to the church. He wasn't talking about running his business. He was talking about church fellowship. And he was wrong. If you're not a thinker, then you find a quote in the Bible or in a red leather book, and if it says a certain thing, you feel guilty if you're not doing what it says. We're to be thinkers, not reflectors. Instead, continue on the quote, instead of confining their study to that which men have said or written, let students be directed to the source of truth, to the vast fields opened for research in nature and revelation. What happens if we restrict our study to Scripture divorced from nature and life experiences, how reality works? What happens? Is one of the problems in Christian education, in the church, the idea that Scripture, sola scriptura, is not to be harmonized with nature and experience. We're to take it as it reads and not bring in these other sources. Is that a problem? Yes. This is why we have all types of irrational and superstitious teachings in Christianity that require you, if you're going to continue to believe it, to stop reasoning, to suspend thinking, to take it on faith, and it destroys your individuality and your ability, and you become a reflector, and, and you stop being a thinker. That's what happens when you take sola scriptura divorced from reality. Let them contemplate the great facts of duty and destiny, and the mind will expand and strengthen. Instead of educated weaklings, institutions of learning may send forth men strong to think and to act, men who are masters and not slaves of circumstances, men who possess breadth of mind, clearness of thought, and courage in their convictions. Wow, educated weaklings. Slaves. How many do we have like this today in society? I see pundits all the time held up as experts on the media with their degrees behind their names who have no clue how reality works. They're educated weaklings. And they can't stand up in the face of public criticism and, and speak the truth in love even though it's not popular to hear. They've been educated not to think, indoctrinated into false systems. We see this both in public universities, and Christian universities. Continue on with the quote. Such an education, the, the, the true education, provides men more than mental discipline. It provides more than physical training. It strengthens the character. 
so that truth and uprightness are not sacrificed to selfish desire or worldly ambition. Oh, do we need that kind of education right now? How much is sacrificed for power and worldly ambition today? Focused on getting ahead at any cost. Continue on. It fortifies the mind against evil. True education does. Learning how to reason and think, how to understand reality. To be a thinker, not a reflector. Instead of some master passion becoming a power to destroy, every motive and desire are brought into conformity to the great principle of right. And the perfection of his, capital H, character is dwelt upon. The mind, as the perfection of his character is dwelt upon, the mind is renewed, the soul is recreated in the image of God. What education can be higher than this? What can equal its value? Well, what law was just described here at the end? There was a law described. It wasn't stated, it was described. Fixing upon his character, the mind is renewed and the soul is recreated in the image of God. That's a law. What law is that? The law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We cannot help it. And what is the impact it will have on the character if we educate our children in public schools in which they are taught godless evolution and they are taught it is foolish to believe in God? What will happen in our society if millions of children are brought up to believe that there is no God and they don't focus on the true character of God? Will they be changed by that process? Will the values of truth, love, and freedom be replaced with the values of me first in this world, power over, winning at all costs, selfishness, survival of the fittest? This is the thing that matters. Are we seeing this in our society today? This is the inevitable outcome, destruction of character of people, which ultimately destroys society. And I want to say, if you're a Christian listening to this, are you supporting organizations or parties in our society that are antagonistic to God, that promote godlessness as a way of life? And if you are, why? What is it you value more than developing godly character by focusing people on the truth about God? Do you value more some political agenda? What is more important than bringing people to the true knowledge of God and educating our children to know him? I will tell you, a lot of Christians in this last election voted to support systems that advance godlessness in our country. And if you understand the law of worship, we don't want the government to teach religion, but we certainly don't want the government to be hostile to religion. The lesson points out that the church is a place where serious discussion should take place, but that some people are afraid to ask questions at church. Why? What would cause people to be afraid to ask questions at church? I've got some possibilities here. I can throw some at you. They don't want to look dumb or look foolish or be laughed at. Or be called a heretic. Or be called a hypocrite or a heretic. Yeah, there's a good one. Or a fanatic. Or be rejected. I was told once years ago, while I was active duty army, I was a major in the army, I went to a service held on the military base in a military chapel that the, the um, chaplain, the military base chaplain, had given permission to some local Seventh-day Adventists to come in and have a, a worship for the Adventists in the military. And I came uh, to participate and during the Sabbath school discussion, I raised some of the views that you know that I love and hold. 
And the non-military person from the local community told me I was from Satan and I wasn't welcome back anymore. <laughs> Think that through. Mm-hmm. I actually wasn't afraid of, of the rejection, but I've, I've had it happen in multiple places and multiple times. Multiple places. And what, what you will discover, it becomes diagnostic. Uh, and we may have this in the notes somewhere. I hope I don't repeat, but the truth doesn't lose anything by investigation. When you have truth on your side, you don't fear questions. It's okay. But when you don't have truth, when your position is threatened by truth, then you have to silence those who ask the questions that lead down the path of truth. And this is what happens when you begin probing that expose certain cherished beliefs that are not founded in truth, they're founded in tradition, people will be threatened by your questions. They can't answer them. They're not comfortable allowing you to still hold them. You either need to surrender your, your question and belief to their indoctrinated orthodox view, or they will ask you to no longer come. Or if you do, you can't speak. You need to keep silent. And we have friends of ours all over the world who email us and tell us that in their local community this happens to them when they begin asking questions. The pastor, the head elder, some of these individuals have been head elders in their church and, and have preached for years. And then when they start presenting some of these things, they're told they can't, they can't teach their Sabbath school, they can't preach anymore, they still can come and attend because we love you. So you can still come and fellowship, but you can't speak in church anymore. Your free speech is not. Why? Why? I don't fear it. Yeah, but one thing, people are threatened because they don't know the answers. That's right, because they don't rest on truth. They've been indoc- they don't, they're not thinkers. They don't know how to reason through. They've been told an answer that is not based in reality. And then when you have a reasoning thinking person, which we teach people to do, and they go in as sources of light, begin to shine light in, the leaders who don't know how to reason and think, who have positions based on simple declarations and proclamations that are not even true, and they begin to crack and fall, they've been told that's heresy by someone in authority. They believe the person in authority, and thus they have to silence the voice. Listen to what they did to Jesus. Look, just read how they treated Jesus. And Jesus said, those in darkness don't want to come into the light. They don't like it. We'll come, back, we'll come to that in a minute. So what they did to us. This is why our ministry exists. Fear of, some people fear argument or conflict. They don't like conflict. They don't, and they're afraid that they speak up, there'll be an argument, and they don't want that. So they, they say something. Uh, some people fear not having faith. They believe the lie that, that they were told that if you have faith, you don't ask questions. Other people have been told that the pastor or the teacher or the elder is God's representative and has been ordained by the church, and, and it's disrespectful and irreverent to question somebody who's been ordained, so you shouldn't question them. You've never heard that one? I was told that one too. Yeah. The pastor is the Lord's anointed. This was told to, told to me here locally. The pastor is the Lord's anointed, and you have no right to question him. Think that through. The high priest in Jesus' day was the Lord's anointed. Jesus had no right to question him. The silliness of this. This was the same argument used by the, 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 the papacy with Martin Luther. So our view is that any question that is asked with a true desire to learn and not from irreverence or not done to mock or to cause derision or to cause confusion, then you can ask questions to do that. But if, if it's coming from a heart that really just wants to learn, any question is, is good. There's no bad question. So we come and reason want to inspire people to ask questions. We like to say, blessed are the wise, W-H-Y-S. <laughs> That's good. 
Blessed are the wise. Why? 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 Okay? In my life, there have been questions that I've asked that have taken me years of study, of thousands and thousands of hours of prayer, study, research, contemplation, working through possibilities before I came to satisfactory answers that were supported by the evidence. Uh, Sometimes when you ask a question, you may not get an immediate answer to that question. And I will tell you, the searching and the studying is an integral part of the journey. The greatest growth comes when you study it out and discover the answer for yourself. That doesn't mean there aren't places for what we're doing here for me to share ideas and concepts, but think about mathematics. We've all had a math teacher, and the math teacher got up, lectured us, taught us, showed us how to do problems. But if we really wanted to be uh, efficient in math, we then had to start working the problems ourselves from what the teacher taught us. And then once we started working the problems ourselves and saw how they worked and we applied them, then we don't believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4 because my teacher said so. But that's how math works. That's what, that's what the answer is. We, we know it for ourselves. That's what's to happen, that each of, each of us must know the truth for ourselves. Sunday's lesson, the fifth paragraph, says, As Seventh-day Adventists, we have been blessed with an abundance of doctrinal light and truth, the state of the dead, the Sabbath, 1844, and the judgment, the great controversy, to name a few teachings. And even most of the, of the Christian world still doesn't, that even most of the Christian world still doesn't understand. And yet, however crucial these truths are, what good they do us if we are not kind to people, if we display prejudice against others, and if we allow the cultural and social biases of our environment to cause us to treat others as inferiors. A couple of interesting things here. We're going to come to the cultural stuff in a moment. I don't want to start with that. We're going to get there in just a second. But it listed some doctrines, and it says much of the Christian world doesn't understand. How many Adventists actually understand them? Exactly. Seriously. What is the purpose of having correct doctrine? Understand this. Correct doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. And they listed some Sabbath day. These are things we. What is the purpose of having correct doctrine? See, if you have the, if you answer this under the lens of God's law works like human law, system of rules, then the purpose of correct doctrine is to give us security. Security is found in the correct doctrines. We must have the right definitions because in a legal setting, legality is always about the right rules, the right rituals, the right doctrines become part of this. And we want to be sure that we were baptized in the right way and we had the right words said when we were baptized and we, and we get our feet washed on the right, uh, times a year, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the right doctrines are part of our feeling spiritually secure. That's their purpose under the false legal model. And that's why when you question the doctrines to the people who run the legal system, they get very irate and very uh, upset because they feel threatened because for them emotionally, it threatens their sense of security. We have believed this. I've taught this for years. And you're suggesting this isn't true? Then I'm not safe. And I've led people into the falsehood that's wrong. No, no, you have to be wrong. I know this is true. And so the doctrines become their source of security. And you see this 
doctrines understood through the penal legal lie that God's law works like human law is the root for all of every form of doctrinal and sectarian discrimination where people look down on others for not having the right doctrines. Oh, I'm sure you've never heard of anything called dark counties because there was no Adventist church there. Think that through. This is Phariseeism. The Pharisees had right doctrines, and they looked down on the Samaritans and the publicans and anybody who wasn't Jewish. It didn't matter what their character was like. It didn't matter um, whether they loved God and others. What mattered was the rules, the doctrines, and keeping those rules, which required uh, uh, adhering to certain list of things. <clears throat> That's where security is found. This is the falsehood that comes from the false legal lens. But what is the purpose of right doctrine? through the design law lens. There is a place for right doctrine. And what is the place for right doctrine through design law? Right doctrine or truths inform us about reality, about God, about his designs for life, about his methods, about how he works, what he's trying to achieve, his purposes, so that we can better understand him and agree with him, grow to be like him, and intelligently choose to cooperate with him and live in harmony with his design laws. Why? Because it makes sense to us and we agree with him. Not because a rule says we have to and if we don't, we're in legal trouble. Do you understand the difference between brushing your teeth today because you understand the reasons for it and you agree with it and you freely want to versus brushing your teeth because if you don't, some government agency is going to police your home, give you a citation and fine you. Those are not the same, are they? Doctrines that are disconnected from God's character and his design laws become rules and litmus tests that fellowship uh, for fellowship, and it causes division. And that's why we're fractured. The most important doctrine that wasn't listed in the lesson, in my view, is the, is the doctrine about God's law being design law. That's core. And then that leads to God's character. I guess one could throw it under the umbrella of the great controversy, but that requires we understand the great controversy to be over God's character and a question of what type of law he uses. Bottom pink section says, what prejudices does your society and culture, culture and society, teach, either subtly or openly, that as a Christian you must rise above? Let me ask you this. It's asking the question of culture here. Do you believe it is righteous or unrighteous to purposely seek to destroy another people's culture? <laughs> I, I say it exactly as I mean it. We want to go out, strategize and plan how we can destroy other people's culture. Well, let me define what I mean by culture. I'm not talking about uh, organisms in a, in a Petri dish. That's a, that's a culture growing there. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about manners or politeness. He's very cultured. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a particular form or stage of civilization, that of a certain nation or group of people or period, such as the African culture, the American Indian culture, the Greek culture. That's what I'm speaking of. So with that in mind, is it righteous or unrighteous to purposely seek to destroy their culture? 
Well, let me ask you this question as you're contemplating that. In our society today, in America, would progressivism, leftism, want us to destroy other cultures, or is the idea of leftism and progressivism all culture is equally value, and it's, and it's hateful and hate speech and a hate crime for you to even contemplate destroying someone else's culture. You should protect it. What do you think? Have I silenced you? Are you all sleeping on me here? Have I interested you in this question? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, as you contemplate that, I will give you Jesus' words. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen to 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Do you believe we should follow Jesus' instructions here? Yes or no? One yes in this whole room. But what are we teaching? Wait, wait, wait. wait. One yes in this whole room. I'm going to say, should we follow Jesus' instructions to Make disciples of all nations. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Do you understand that he was instructing them to go out and eradicate paganism and all cultures based on false views about him? To eradicate cultures based on the principles of this world, on, based on selfishness and power over others. And to establish a culture based on God's love and love for others on truth, love, and liberty. That's what, he was, that was, that's what he was advocating. So, if we follow Jesus' command, we're very specific here, will we, and, we, and we seek to convert people to Christ, that would be part of it, yes, bring them to Christ so that they're reborn, have God's law written on their heart and mind. We all agree so far, right? If we do that, will we simultaneously be purposely carrying forward an agenda that will destroy Voodoo culture. Yes. yes. Witchcraft culture, which includes nature and earth worship, which would be the green movement. Native American animistic spirit worship culture. Hindu culture. Islamic culture. Buddhist culture. Godless communism, evolutionism, humanism culture. If we carry out Jesus' command, are we actively seeking to destroy multiple cultures in this world that are based on lies of Satan? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Only if we use God's methods to do it. Wait, we're not there yet. <laughs> I am. <laughs> so can Christianity, if it fulfills the commission, really seek to protect these other cultures? Okay. Two of you got there faster. I'll let you contemplate that and ask it again. If we carry out the gospel commission to convert people to Christ, can we simultaneously seek in our societies to protect these other cultures? Do you see why progressivism and leftism, which believes all cultures are equal and should be protected, works via laws and via social pressures to obstruct the sharing of the gospel? That in some places in the world, it's become illegal to share Christ. It's become illegal to give out the great controversy which exposes the abuse of the Roman church in the Dark Ages, and it's considered hate speech. How many of you Christians listening are buying in to the lies of the left 
that we should show respect for these other cultures and it would be wrong to try to undermine them and that we should protect them. Do you understand you're destroying Christianity in that process? You're undermining the very gospel commission that we should be seeking to destroy these cultures? No, we're not, because we bought the lies. It's quite corrosive. <laughs> There's a lot of wheels turning out there. Good. So we agree that we should take the gospel commission to the world and we should convert people, truth presented in love, leaving people free, practicing God's methods, converting them, not coercing them. We agree with that. And if we do that, then over the course of time, these godless cultures will be replaced. They'll be eradicated. We agree that that is a godly thing to do. Everybody in agreement? Yes? Okay. But what about destroying other cultures through military might by killing those who won't join us. Is this a good or bad thing for the world? Bad? Destructive. Destructive? Other thoughts? Bad? As Christians, I'm going to support Russell, we cannot advocate the methods of might and killing to advance our cause. We cannot advocate those methods. Only truth, present in love, leaving people free. Let's be very clear on this. But does that set us up to draw a false conclusion that the results in history from parties that did use those methods are bad? That the outcomes of using those by other parties have been bad? Does that set us up to conclude that? For instance, in a, there's this big idea being propagated in America today that, that, that it, America is evil because its founders warred against the Native American peoples and actually wiped them out. And therefore, our culture is evil and our culture is bad because it destroyed or wiped out the Native American culture. What do you think? Good or bad? America better off because of that or worse off? Is the world better for having done that? Well, let me give you an example. Would the world today be better off if Cortez and the Spanish did not go to war with the Aztecs and did not destroy the Aztec culture in Mexico. And today, Mexico was still run by the Aztecs, and we had child sacrifice, human sacrifice, and cannibalism going on in Mexico. Would we have a better world? Well, but how did the Spanish get rid of the Aztecs and their human sacrifice, cannibalistic culture? How'd they get rid of them? By war and by killing them. Now, we as Christians can certainly not advocate that, But it's also a false conclusion to believe that the world would be better off had the Aztecs survived as a culture. Well, didn't God tell the Israelites to destroy the people of Canaan as they came in? I'm going to just tell you guys, the whole philosophy of left that everything is equal of value is a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. Be discerning. Reason. Aztec culture is not equal to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not. And neither was the Native American Indian culture equal to the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, it probably was no worse than the false Christianity of the Dark Ages that murdered, that carried out the crusade, burned people at the stake. That wasn't the gospel of Jesus Christ either. That was false Christianity. And the world is better off because of the Protestant Reformation, which put restraints on that abusive church. Many of the non-thinking people in the world, however, cannot discern that the Christianity of the Dark Ages is not the Christianity of Jesus Christ. They don't know that. So they, they think Christianity and they look at the abuses of the past. 
And this led to humanism. Humanism actually was a step forward from totalitarian um, papalism. The Renaissance and Enlightenment led to more liberties and freedoms than you had under an inquisitor. But it didn't lead to God. The true gospel message is the only culture that actually brings true healing to the hearts and minds of people. So don't be afraid of somebody who challenges you. Do you want to destroy somebody else's culture? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I really do. I really do. I want to destroy all culture that is contrary to God's kingdom through the methods of truth presented in love, leaving people free. Yes? Can you discern maybe a difference between culture and then values or ethics that you could... It's the values and the ethics that, that are different, maybe not that are, I would say, opposed to God, maybe not so much the culture. Is it that, can you sift out the idea of values? No. No, no, I, I would, I would uh, say no, because the values and ethics are always based on morality. Morality is always based on how one understands right and wrong, which is always based on the law that one understands, which is always based on the God that one worships. And so you can't, you know, this is why these cultures are so corrosive. They have corrosive God constructs or godlessness itself, which then becomes survival. The fittest is the ultimate law and the strong survive. So no, moral and morality, uh, ethics, ethics is always going to be an, a reflection of one's morality, which is always going to be a reflection of the, the, uh, the God that one views the world or the universe to operate under. So I don't think you can separate them. To a point, you could have cultural things. I was trying to think something like say, the person's culture is that we grow crops, you know. Another person's culture is we have an industrial thing. Is one, you know, is, is that all... Yeah, but that's not ethical. That's not an ethical issue. Crops oh, versus... I know. That's yeah. what I'm saying. You can, you can sift out the ethical parts and still have cultural differences that are not... So not a, necessarily a culture. Okay. I, I now understand what you're saying. Yes. You absolutely can have cultural differences if you define culture as things like um, what color of clothing we wear. Uh, in our culture, women wear dresses, and in another culture, they can wear pants. Um, there are things that may not have a significant impact on the um, practices and, and, uh, and um, methods of God. They're just n neutral. Um, whether we uh, allow instruments like the piano in our church or only uh, have no instruments and only voices can, can give music in church, as some Christian culture differences are. So there can be differences along those lines that have no bearing on anything. But we do want to destroy all culture, as I said, that is at variance with the kingdom of God. I don't like the question of ethics, though, because the question of ethics really... Um, or values. I don't like the question of ethics or values, because the question of ethics or values um, uh, can have nothing to, again to do with the kingdom of God. You can have ethics and value questions that um, are related to simple preference and taste. Um, we value, for instance, uh, one culture can value um, farming more than uh, industrialization, and it has nothing to do with character or God at all. But there's a value there that's different. Uh, one country may value one, one group of people may value drums, and one may devalue them, um, and and actually see them as part of a satanic uh, uh, influence in the church. Uh, so um, the value question, it doesn't really tie it to, to me either. I, I see the differences, and you, but I think that actually, when you bring in values and ethics, you immediately open it up 
to confusion because value and ethics are not tied ultimately to constants that never change. They're wavering constantly based on the values and or ethics of the population. So what really matters is tying it to God's design laws and how reality works, which will have values and ethics, but they can have wide ranging depending on circumstances. And, and I have a whole, I, I haven't done it in years, but I used to do one on, on situation ethics. God's laws are never changing, but the application of his laws are constantly changing depending on the situation. So ethics are constantly changing. There is no set ethic. You might say, well, yes, we have a set ethic in our church, and the set ethic is men never rip a women's blouse open and expose their breasts in church. Never. That's an ethic we have. Well, okay, well, somebody's um, loved one had a heart attack and was in um, V-fib, and the EMTs got there and were going to save her, but the ethic was you can't open her shirt and put the paddles on to save her, so she died, because we keep our ethic here. No, that's situational. The situation overrules the ethic, and we're going to do that in the floor of the church, okay? So ethics, again, for me, is, is, is only opens confusion and argument. Um, rather than actually having a standard that never changes. The principles of God never change, but the applications are constantly changing based on the circumstances. And so, so I, I, again, I, I don't put those in. I, I, I leave them separate. We should do a talk on ethics. We really should. You've, you've stim- I've got so many things popping in my mind now. I just love what you brought that up. You could go into a culture and not change your culture, but change all, you, you could teach all the things that Jesus did, and they would completely change, but their culture would not change. But yes, it would. As soon as they stop sacrificing their kids, stop cannibalism, stop worshiping to idols, stop... Uh, I would say that's the ethics part, but they would still live in farming, they would still live in grass huts. I disagree. Because as soon as you embrace the principles of God, then you embrace education. You embrace enlightenment. You embrace growing in God. And therefore, your entire culture will begin assimilating and moving forward in ways it's never moved. That's what's made America great. America has advanced more than any other country because of the principles of Protestantism, which was foundational to the, uh, uh, the founding of this country. And the peoples of this country who practiced them advanced beyond any other people in history and accumulated more power but abused it less and have advanced the cause of the human condition more than any other. So I would disagree. As soon as you bring the principles of Christianity to bear in the hearts and minds of people, the culture absolutely changes. It improves. It improves, yes. All right, Monday's lesson, it says, uh, everywhere we look, it seems as though our planet is turning in upon itself, exchanging light for darkness. Yet we also encounter darkness much closer to home as we consider our own experience in different and difficult and challenging world. Uh, for we, we too understand the horrors that this life brings us as we struggle with illness, as we deal with the loss of loved ones, as we watch families succumb to separation and divorce, as we struggle to make sense of many evil things in our society and culture. Yet amid this landscape of moral bankruptcy and spiritual darkness, in the midst of all this eternal and internal, external and internal noise, we hear Jesus' words to each of us that you are a light into the world. What does it mean to be a light into the world? What is the darkness? You don't see any in the darkness. Lightness shows light, shows reality. So is darkness only the lies of the falsehood? Or would darkness include any practices that interfere with the truth being brought forward that would expose the lie? So the lie itself is darkness. We all agree with that, right? But how about practices that obstruct the ability for the truth to come forward. We have faith. We don't need evidence. 
that would be darkness. So-and-so teaches heresy. Don't listen to what they have to say. Believing allegations, claims, or proclamations without evidence. Taking someone's words and editing them to make them appear as if the person said something they really didn't intend. Censoring information. Stopping views from being heard that are different than the one you want advanced. Obstructing free speech. Obstructing free free speech is not a lie in itself. But it's part of the darkness. It keeps the truth from going forward. We as a people have believed this doctrine for hundreds of years. Anything that questions what we've taught for hundreds of years can't be true. This is a quote from one of the founders of the SDA Church and Councils to Writers and Editors on page uh, 35. There's no excuse for anyone taking a position that there's no more truth to be revealed or that all are, are expositions of Scripture without an error. Think the, think the beauty of that through. That's beautiful. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not proof that our ideas are infallible. Beautiful again. The truth loses nothing. Keep going. It says, age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine loses anything by close investigation. We are living in perilous times. Do you believe that? And it does not become us to accept everything claimed to be true without examining it, examining it thoroughly. Neither can we afford to reject anything that bears the fruits of the Spirit of God, but we should be teachable, meek, and lowly in heart. There are those who oppose everything that is not in accordance with their own ideas. So whether in church or society, when we see practices that suggest we don't need to examine evidence, that we should just believe because someone in a position of authority makes a claim, we should recognize that action as an obstruction of truth, as a practice of darkness. Hear me, folks. When you see happening, which happens every day on any news channel you watch or listen to, you will hear declarations and proclamations without evidence, obstructing and ridiculing people who want evidence. For instance, if it were alleged... Notice the word allegation is not evidence, it's an allegation. But if it were alleged that a computer was found with emails and documents revealing corruption, an innocent person would demand that the computer be brought out and examined by experts and authorities so that the evidence would expose the fraud and that it was not their computer and the emails were fabricated. You would demand if someone had some fake computer that was never yours and you never possessed and you never put anything on it, you would demand it be brought out so the evidence would reveal your innocence, wouldn't you? But if you were guilty, you would not want the evidence brought out. You would use proclamations and you would proclaim it's fake. It's, we don't need to look. This is a vast conspiracy. Everybody knows it's a conspiracy. That's the practice of darkness. I don't care who's doing it. 
Do you guys have discernment, whether it's in the church, whether it's in society, that you can see these practices when they're at work? Now, I want to say, because some, some of you may be thinking I'm being political. <laughs> I am not. I'm, I am teaching you discernment skills wherever you apply them. If you go to the gym and exercise weights, you're not restricted to using them in the gym. Your muscles, that is. You're not restricted to using the stronger muscles in the gym. If you're learning to discern, you need to use those discernment skills across the breadth of your life experience. But <clears throat> what is the difference? Actually, what is the difference between Christians advancing the gospel, the truth which will destroy ungodly culture? That's what the gospel will do. It will destroy ungodly culture. And politics. What's the difference between advancing the gospel and politics? What is the difference? Here's the difference as I understand it. Christianity, the true gospel, is about people, about healing hearts and minds, about freeing people from sin, from guilt, from shame, about freeing people from practices that are in violation of God's design, about bringing people into harmony with Jesus, about, about healing people so they have greater freedom, freedom from guilt, freedom from sin, freedom from shame. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So Christianity is about writing God's law, upon the hearts and minds of people. So they're transformed away from fear and selfishness to love God and others. And thus, as Christian Christianity spreads through the hearts of people, we have more peace in society as people become more trustworthy and engage in loving their neighbor as themselves. That's Christianity. Politics is about power over others. Pure and simple. That's what it's about. Politics is always about getting power over people. It may be framed in the rhetoric of advancing the human condition, of eliminating inequalities, of promoting welfare for others. But make no mistake, politics does not transform hearts to become like Jesus. It does not. Politics always divides and it incites hostility, and it is purposeful and intentional in its motives to stir up intense feelings and create fractions and divisions in society so that the people can rise up and be a leader of various particular factions or groups for their own empowerment. This is what politics is about. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which heals hearts, brings unity we are one. Regardless of our race, regardless of our culture, regardless of our background, our historic culture, we come into the culture of Jesus Christ. But politics wants to promote societal division, creating frac uh, factions that then can be exploited for the empowerment of people that lead those factions. Understand that very clearly. The lesson points out that Jesus lived under Roman occupation and that Roman society was militarized and there was much social injustice in Roman society. And there was slavery, there were wars. And understand the wars in Roman society were not Rome defending itself at this time when Jesus was there. The wars during Jesus' time was Rome seeking to enrich itself by conquering other peoples and expanding their power base. They were on the offensive. There were gladiators. In other words, they had sports in which people fought to the death. 
crucifixions of criminals, discrimination, prejudice, bias of all kinds. And I mentioned slavery. How did Jesus confront the social injustice of the Roman and Jewish governments? Was What polit- politicians did Jesus support? What legislation did Jesus seek to get passed? What political parties did Jesus join? Yes. Going back sort of to the light and darkness, because you're all these things you're saying, the darkness, you know, all of those Roman things that they did, part of the darkness, the light, Christ, Christians as light, but we are light. You know, the candlestick, I, I just keep thinking of this candlestick in the holy, holy place, it's empty tubes. No. It, it, has, it has to be filled with the, okay. the oil. It, yeah, I was going to say, it was filled with oil. Okay. The oil that gives the light, not the candlestick, the oil. Meaning, as Christians, it's, it's the oil when we have the Holy Spirit. And right, right. That's where the light comes. So the Christianity is a, is a movement of people that have the Holy Spirit. It's really the Holy Spirit that's doing the change, doing the, you know, the ultimate analysis. We use our minds in combination, combination with the Holy Spirit. And does the oil in the lamp, lamp in the holy in the uh, holy place, give light without a wick? Well, the oil can burn. I guess you can burn. A but 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 oil. did it did did it have a wick or not have a wick? have a wick? Yes, of course. And what is the wick in the metaphor? Since the oil is the Holy Spirit, your individuality. That's your individuality. And uh, every morning and evening, the high priest and the high priest only came in and trimmed the wick. Only the high priest. Who's the high priest? Christ. Christ. And the bowl with the wick is your heart where your individuality resides. And this is representative of Christ working via the Holy Spirit to trim away or cut circumcision of the heart, attachments and practices and methods and ideas and principles that are worldly and establish us more and more in purity in harmony with God's kingdom so that our individuality, we cooperate with him for that process. It's a cooperative effort. We can burn more brightly for him. So you're exactly right. It's God doing the work, but he's not doing the work without our individuality being transformed in the process. And we individually participate with him. It's the oil that's giving the light off. You can have all the wicks in the world in a, in a room, and that room's going to be dark. Yeah. You got, they have to have the oil to make the light. So Jesus didn't support any political party. What about the apostles? Why did, didn't Paul, now we're talking about social injustice, why didn't Paul tell Christian slaves to run away? Now we're going to, uh, I, I didn't set it up this way, but what I'm going to walk you through is situation ethics. When we have ethics, we all agree in a Christian worldview, slavery is evil. Slavery is wrong. We are creating the image of God, right? Do you find the New Testament actually telling slaves to run away? Or do you find just the opposite? He tells them to go back. Why? You see, this is where ethics change based on circumstance, but principles of God's kingdom do not change. What do the principles of God's kingdom want for every person? Freedom. Free, okay, I was going to say the restoration of the image of God within, which would include, ultimately, restoration to freedom. Exactly, but the restoration of the image of God within. So walk me through this now. In that society, if a slave would have run away, what kind of life would they have had? Would they have had less stress or more? Would they be able to run somewhere in the kingdom 
and have a home of their own, get a job, establish a family, and live in peace and security? Or would they live, for their, if ever long they were away from their slave master, would they live in fear of getting caught and crucified for the rest of their life? And always looking over their shoulder, always going to bed at night wondering if they will wake up in the morning in chains. What does this kind of never-ending fear and stress do to a person? Does it help them grow in love? Or does it destroy love in the heart? Get your mind around what I'm saying here. Why didn't Paul tell them, okay, fine. Well, then why didn't he tell all the Christian slave owners who converted to set their slaves free? At least, okay, they're not going to run away. Let's set them free. Why didn't he do that? Did the Bible do that? Does the Bible tell him to set their slaves free? It does not. No, 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 no. That was under the Israel government, not Paul in the Roman government. We're talking Paul in the New Testament the Roman government. The New Testament does not tell the, the Roman citizens who convert and the other people who own slaves to set them free under the Roman government. The Jubilee did, but that was under Israel as a sovereign nation. We're not there anymore. We're in a new, new, this is contextual. This is that situation, ethics. Why? If a Christian slave owner during Paul's day did set a slave free, did that mean the newly free slave had Roman citizenship? Yes or no? They did not. They were not citizens of Rome. They just weren't a slave anymore. If they were not a citizen of Rome, what could happen to them? What could happen to them? They could become a slave again to somebody else who was not a Christian. But what if the Christian slave owner began to practice what Paul told Philemon's owner to do? Treat them as a member of the family, as your son or your daughter. And if the Christian slave owner began to treat their slaves as members of the family, while they technically remained slaves, they began to, they would then actually, in the way their lives functioned, they would have greater liberty and greater freedom and greater respect and greater security. They would be protected in the Roman society from others who would exploit them because they were under the protection of the Christian who was still their technical legal owner. And they would have space where they worshiped together and loved God together and ministered to each other and they could grow in godly character. Does the fact that Paul and the New Testament did not condemn slavery mean it's a good thing and that Christianity supports it? No. No, absolutely not. This is your childish reading of the New Testament that some people try to criticize. They don't understand principles. Now, I want to be very clear here. The situation in the United States in the 19th century is quite different from Rome during Paul's time. In the United States, there was a strong abolitionist movement with many states and leaders opposing slavery. In Rome, there was no support from any society leaders or any government officials or any areas in the entire Roman Empire that was supportive of an abolitionist movement. Everything was pro-slavery. In the United States, a runaway slave could find safety in the northern states where they would be protected by the states in the north and, and by the leaders in the north, and they could get a job, and they could establish a family, they could live lives of relative security without fear of being sent back and, in, and enslaved again. This is a completely different circumstance than what's going on in Rome. And this is why Christians rightly supported the Underground Railroad and the abolition movement to get people free of this abuse. In Rome, there was nowhere a runaway slave could go and be protected from the Roman government. Nowhere. Does our discussion here help you understand this issue in a way that makes sense now? 
That was situation ethics. The principles of love, of a larger reality, changing hearts, applied to a local circumstance and situation rather than rules. And therefore, the Bible looks magnificent and beautiful because it's always about healing hearts and minds. Um, there's another couple of points I really wanted to get to. Well, you didn't ask something. Christ didn't support any political thing, but when he said, render it to Caesar, those things are to Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, what exactly was he referring to then? He, making the distinction between the righteous use of local governments, Romans 13 goes into that, the righteous use of human law is to restrain um, the practices of evil, to restrain the murderer, to restrain the thief, to restrain the pedophile, to restrain the, uh, the exploiter of people, okay? to restrain anarchy, to create the greatest atmospheres of liberty and freedom so the gospel message can go forward. You can restrain evil by might and power. You cannot advance righteousness by might and power. So that, that was the, the distinction. So the second, uh, in Tuesday's lesson, the second to the last paragraph says, And as disciples of Jesus, we not only have respect for all people, but we will work to provide the kind of place where all people can grow and develop. This is a wonderful idea. But do you understand? To do that requires you understand reality. And I will tell you, this is another part of the problem in our society today, Reality of God's kingdom has been replaced with fraudulent list, and I'm going to expose why. I really want to go into this. It's a great idea. You should understand it. What kind of actions, practices, principles create places where people can grow and develop, and what kind of actions obstruct them? Can people grow and develop without applying themselves, without exercising their abilities? This is a law of exertion. If you want something to get strong, you must exercise it, because if you don't use it, you lose it. We all get that across the whole domain of human experience. So what about this? Parable or proverb. Give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. Does this old proverb have any insight into developing our abilities? What about social programs that give people things but don't give opportunity to achieve one's abilities or develop their ability? We give them handouts, but we don't give them opportunity to exercise ability. Why would people purposely take actions that interfere with other people's growth and development? Well, consider Helen Keller. It's a great object lesson. Before Annie Sullivan came into her life, what kind of development did she have of her abilities with, under her mother's care? Essentially none. She was almost a wild animal by the time Annie came along. And why did this happen? Did her mother not love her, or did her mother love her? Her mother did love her very, very much, but there was a, a combination of factors that interfered with Helen's development of her abilities. One, mother's love caused over-empathy, and mother was ignorant of reality. So over-empathy with ignorance is destructive. And so Helen's mother saw how terrible the disability, how, hu uh, uh, how, how hugely disadvantaged she was, and had compassion with deep sadness and great empathy for Helen, and didn't want to add any more burdens to this poor child who'd already suffered so much, and it fuel empathy fueled her by her ignorance, uh, led her to no longer discipline Helen, to not push her to learn in ways that caused the child to, in the moment, suffer and be uncomfortable and cry and protest. And so the mother just let the child do what she wanted, and the child became almost a wild animal. The mother's love over empathy along with ignorance worked to destroy 
And it was destroying what was happening in this child. Annie came along, however, and, and understood reality and wanted to develop the abilities that Helen had. And so the first thing she did is she took her away from her mother. <laughs> really, who was overindulging, okay? And then began to set boundaries and hold accountable and require certain uh, levels of function, like hold a spoon to eat. And, and you saw, if you saw the movie, you saw over and over again, spoons put her hand, throw it, throw it. And eventually Helen slaps Annie. And what did Annie do? She slapped her back. Now, what would happen if today we had a cell phone video of a social worker slapping a deaf, dumb, blind girl? <laughs> How about we have a cell phone video of a white social worker slapping a black, deaf, dumb, blind girl? What would happen? Now, was Annie abusing the child? This was not abuse. She understood how reality worked. She gave a consequence for misbehavior that was painful and that ultimately brought the child in. It was discipline. It was not abuse. And it brought the child into a place where the child began to learn. And, of course, you know the story. Helen learns to read sign language. She learns Braille. She gets a college education. She becomes autonomous and independent. She developed her abilities. But what kind of an atmosphere was required? She had to exercise them. She had to be held accountable. There had to be consequences. She had to go through some discomfort and pain. In our society today, there's this great corruption that sees people that come from objective. I'm going to be very clear. Helen had objective, real problems. She didn't make them up. It wasn't her fault. There are people that come, come into our, our sphere, our domain, to school, to class, whatever, and they come from backgrounds. They have objective, real disadvantages. They're real. They're not made up. They're not pretended. But it doesn't change how reality works. No matter where we start, no matter our disadvantage point, if we want to grow, if we want to develop, we must exercise ourselves. We must apply ourselves. We must, must uh, work in harmony with the methods that God has designed health to grow upon. Simply being handed everything because we have a difficult background only enfeebles us and weakens us. And then I'm going to have to skip a quote. There's another thing I want to get to in Thursday's lesson. I think you might find it very interesting, if I can take a few minutes to do it. And it's about us becoming one with the Father and the metaphor of the body. And think about circulation as the blood is circulating and it comes to a bifurcation in the arteries. Do the blood cells fight over which ones go to the brain and which ones go to the intestines? Or is there perfect harmony? They just cooperate perfectly together. I'm going to suggest to you that as the Bible uses this idea of, of we are one as one body and that uh, we may be one. Jesus prayed that the Father and I and me and me and you and so forth. And that uh, you read in um, Ephesians where that uh, there is one body and one spirit and one Lord and one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That this is talking about more, in my view, than simply one view, one belief, one attitude, one emotion of love and concern, that there is a physical aspect to our unity, a harmonic, a resonance that, uh, that originates in God, the source of all power, all physical matter, all life, and that, that there is to be a harmony in, in uh, God's kingdom, and that sin breaks and causes dissonance in God's kingdom and severs that connection. This is out of Steps to Christ, page 17. It says, In his sinless state, man held joyful communion with him in whom are hid all the treasures and wisdom of, uh, and, and knowledge. But after his sin, he could no longer find joy in holiness, and he sought to hide from the presence of God. Such is still the condition of the unrenewed heart. It is not in harmony with God and finds no joy in communion with him. The spirit of unselfish love that reigns in heaven 
Every heart responding to the heart of infinite love would touch no answering chord in his soul. His thoughts, his interests, his motives would be alien to those who actuate the sinless dwellers there. He would be a discordant note in the melody of heaven and so forth. Is this more than metaphor, just just good imagery? Is there actual harmonic, dissonant energy, frequency, physical aspects of this that's literal? I'm going to suggest there is. And in your own experience, do you, when you are experiencing and acting upon godly love in your life, do you feel in your being a different energy, a different resonance, a different harmonic, a different frequency than when you have had moments when you have been responding to fear and selfishness and acting against others? Can you feel there's a different energy pattern there? Can you feel it in your being? Okay. So this is out of Faith I Live by, page 57. Christ is represented by the Holy Spirit. And when this spirit is appreciated, when those controlled by the spirit communicate to others the energy with which they are imbued, an invisible cord is touched which electrifies the whole. Would that we all, would that we could all understand how boundless are the divine resources. And then I love this one, Evangelism, page 93. It is God's plan that every part of his government shall depend on every other part. The whole is a wheel within a wheel, working with entire heart, with an entire harmony. He moves upon human forces, causing his spirit to touch invisible cords, and the vibration rings to the extremity of the universe. You see, I think as we, as we harmonize with God, we are physiologically changed. Our neural pathways change. The dendritic, uh, the, the, um, the molecules and the dendrites have a, a realignment. We have harmonic frequency change. We come more and more in harmony with God and his spirit, which resonate more fully in us, and we become lights of truth, but eventually our faces will shine like Moses' face shined. We will be conduits of God's physical dwelling place uh, where the spirit dwells in us, the, 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 this temple where God dwells. And one day we will have light as our, our covering and that light comes from God as we shine like on the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah joined Jesus and they were brightest sons. There's something physical about this that's real. And we'll close with Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, for he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's a literal aspect to our creator God who has constructed his universe, and sin causes us to become discordant, become out of harmony with heaven. And God is working through his agencies to restore us through his methods, truth, love, freedom, back into harmony with heaven. Gracious Heavenly Father, we've asked for the outpouring of your spirit to identify in our hearts those elements that are out of harmony so that we can surrender them to you. You can cut them away from us and we can be established and sealed into your kingdom and you can enable us and empower us to be lights in a world in which the practices of darkness have become the the thing that people cherish and the thing that is promoted and validated and we can see the spiritual war and we can see the temptations that, that when we see certain injustices is uh, happening in our society we can be tempted to want to use those methods of the world but lord we ask that your 
spirit of love will come and your spirit of truth and we will resist those pullings of the enemy and we will stand firm and be sealed into your kingdom and you will open new avenues and bring new people to work with us to share this final message that we can prepare this world for your soon return. We pray in your holy name. Amen.